Good morning and welcome to episode 795 of Effectively Wild, a daily podcast from BaseballProspectus.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hi, Ben. Hello. How are you? Great, and looking forward to this cornucopia of catcher defense articles at BP. And oh, yeah. And read as soon as we finish recording. Yeah, it... Uh, this is like a day for me. It was designed for me. Yeah, why didn't you do this day when you were in charge? <laughs> I tried. Interesting. Yeah, we. you're right, as you noted, or as you're alluding to, baseball prospectus very, very, very vastly expanded the offerings of our catcher defense metrics. We already had rolled them out, but um, primarily for very, very modern uh, years only because they relied on uh, you know, either pitch effects data or, you know, play-by-play data that was easily accessible. And as our stat team has worked on expanding it in the last uh, six months or year, they've been able to, uh, what, it's uh, catcher framing data going back to 1988. Yep, uh, which it, is the, the beginning of pitch-by-pitch data in right, the big leagues. Exactly. Uh, blocking and throwing data in the majors back to the 1950s. Uh, so you can now go find out just how good Yogi Berra was and minor league, uh, framing data, depending on the level in the league, uh, as, as far back as 2005. So you can go find out, for instance, how good Kenley Jansen was as a catcher. (laughs) How good was he? Well, let me, uh, I can look it up if you want. (laughs) I, uh, let's see. Maybe you already had. No, I, I have it somewhere. Let me see. Uh, I was, uh. I didn't. I never. Do, I never dug into it. But I was. Did he did, catch it a high enough level? He might not have caught it. A he high did. Enough level. He did. Oh. He he caught. Uh, he caught in AAA. Oh. All right. So uh, let's see. Kenley Jansen uh, was at AAA. He was a slightly below average framer. Uh huh. Overall, he was a uh, below average blocker. He was below average at all three levels that we have him at: uh, high A, I believe, low A and triple a below average at all three and it looks like he was a i'm gonna say let's see he was slightly above average with the running game so in his career as a uh, minor league catcher uh, he saved about uh, a run and a half with his arm cost his team about a run with his blocking uh, and his framing uh, we only have for his triple a so it's uh, it's hard to say exactly but he doesn't uh, appear to have been a great framer so you know it's okay. a, around an average maybe worse catcher defensively all right that, so now you know he's not wasted as a closer it's okay you want to know uh you want to know anybody you want to know neil walker or jason mott <laughs> i got uh, josh willingham here i've got mm. uh, will myers i've got all the ex-catchers oh will myers that's pablo pablo sandoval you want will myers will myers sure. didn't will myers did not get high enough uh to to okay. give us framing data uh-huh. But uh, he was a well below average blocker and a slightly below average thrower. 
and as a catcher in the in basically in 2010, the one year that we have this stuff, uh, just with his uh, just with those skills, he cost his team about five runs, and wow. pr- presumably not a good framer. But we don't have that data yet. Yeah, five runs—that's a lot for blocking and throwing. Yeah, it is. Let's see. I'm seeing if any of the former catchers are good. Uh, were good defensively. Uh, Sandoval looks like uh, again framing not really only only briefly a part of Sandoval's data, but uh, Sandoval was a positive contributor with his glove. And uh, Josh Donaldson was about uh, Josh Donaldson was a positive contributor with his glove. Uh, and Jesus Montero complete disaster. So yeah, there you go. All right, Josh Willingham bad bad catcher. Well, I'm glad this stuff exists. Yeah. I will spend hours poring over it. Yeah. Well, you used it, in fact. You, I did for the Mike Piazza article. Not not for us, though. <laughs> no. Not allowed. In, in fact, uh, because of that, I didn't. Uh, Russell was going to write a Mike Piazza article, but he was so kind that he let you have it. <laughs> so you actually are actively hurting the site. <laughs> but all the people I brought to VP with that article. I do like Russell's piece on Russell Martin. Though. That might be my favorite thing up there. Yeah, looking forward to that too. All right. So uh, speaking of, th- do you have any banter? Nope, that was it. All right. Speaking of things that appeared on Baseball Prospectus, uh, in November, Matt Trueblood wrote a piece about the AL Central. And uh, this was going into the offseason. We basically, uh, it was right after the World Series, right before any signings or trades had happened. Uh, and uh he picked the AL Central because the AL Central was, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, impossible to predict in the offseason. Not in the season, but in the offseason. You can't predict baseball offseason in the AL Central because you could make a case for all five teams to go in one direction or the exact opposite of that direction. So he laid out why it was hard to put each team exactly where they were. I guess the the, uh, the summaries for each team would probably be like, well, that the White Sox had just invested a lot in the short term uh, and uh, saw it as their window and yet uh, and had some aging players and yet also had come off a very poor year and weren't exactly like, you know, a game away from the World Series or anything. Uh, the Indians uh, had in some ways the the most encouraging season in, this, in that division by a uh, by a uh, component standpoint, uh, and especially uh, once they seem to figure out their defense midseason. Uh, however, they are uh, they're very they're very poor, limited financially, and they only won eighty one games. Uh, the Tigers are the rich team, but they also are the team with the most money expended. Thus, uh, you know, in, into the future, and uh, they were the last place team. The Royals won the World Series, were the talk of the town, uh, and yet were about to lose a whole bunch of key players and didn't seem to be financially positioned to sign them. And then the Twins were the surprise upstart team and come into uh, are, are sort of seeing the uh, the fruits of their farm system, which was considered elite a couple years ago, pay off. Uh, and yet uh, their successful, surprisingly successful season was also, uh, in a lot of ways, a house of cards built on. Uh, perhaps good luck, right? Is that a mm-hmm. pretty good summary of the five teams? Yeah. It is now January 12th, and a bunch of players have been signed, and uh, more notably, in fact, a bunch of players have not been signed. Still no still no movement, Ben. Still just, nope. still still no just Justin Upton. Not even... Still no Chris Davis. Not even not even really rumors. No. Just, I mean, uh, we're, it's like eh, Chris Davis will decide someday. That's about what we get. It's crazy. I read a report that Scott Boris is trying to sell him as a corner outfielder. Uh-huh. 
good room. That qualifies as a rumor. Yeah, that counts as a yeah. That qualifies. That's a rumor. I wouldn't think he wasn't a corner outfielder. I mean, do you really need to he sell has him? Played corner outfield. Right. What do you need to sell him for? Like, I mean, I guess you can say he's willing to do it. That he's he. If you asked him to do it, he would have a great attitude and be excited for the challenge. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, what? Like, are there are there any teams out there that are considering Chris Davis that hadn't already thought? How would he handle the outfield? Well, the report made it sound as if he was pitching him as a full-time corner outfielder, which he's never been. And I don't know how he's graded out as one. Let's see. Not great, but he hasn't spent a lot of time there. He played 86 innings in left field in 2012 and then about 230 innings in right field that year and then not again in either field until last season when he played 253 innings in right field. So he'd gone a couple of years without doing it at all and hasn't done it much really. But don't you think that teams have already thought this this out though? Like they've already considered it? Maybe. I don't I don't know that it helps him that what, much because, because there's two other the corner, corner outfielders, outfield right. market not moving. What <laughs> so. what he sh- I mean what what it seems like what you should be selling him right now as is a premium like a, a, what you want to get people thinking is that he's so good that he's worth signing as a DH basically. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, or a first baseman, but like you want to it seems to me that you want to really like your message is this guy is a better hitter than David Ortiz. This guy is a better hitter than Nelson Cruz. This guy is a better hitter than all the DHs. And so if you're one of those teams that wants a DH, don't be thinking, well, we don't really invest in DHs. This is the guy you do. This is the David Ortiz. And mm-hmm. that's what that's how I would be selling him because there's not an equivalent out there like I I he's a much better it when he's clicking right he's a much better hitter than Justin Upton and Cespedes right yes and so uh if you I it seems like you'd want to find the team that is looking for the best hitter yeah sure and I'll give you my money sell him as a corner outfielder and now he's I don't know I don't know I don't think he's better than Justin Upton or Cespedes as an outfielder yeah it's just Added versatility, I yeah. suppose. Right, yeah. Which then, then just goes back to the, like, this is pretty common sense stuff. It's yeah. it, it's sort of insulting to a team that you'd have to remind <laughs> Scott them. Scott would insult a team's intelligence about a free agent. That doesn't sound like him. Yeah, anyway. So uh, so uh, the, that is just to say that we can, uh, I think that you can now talk about the AL Central in a different way because we know what they've each done this offseason. Uh, and also because there is still work to be done, and it's interesting to see whether, or it, it might be interesting to think about whether any of these teams uh, is the team that will sign uh, Upton, Cespedes, Chris Davis, Wei Yin Chen, Dexter Fowler, Howie Kendrick, Ian Desmond, or one of the other many free agents available, Giovanni Gallardo, probably others. Mm-hmm. All right, so so let's start with the White Sox. Uh, okay. The White Sox were last year's surprise spender. They got David Robertson, Adam LaRoche, Melky Cabrera. They traded for Jeff Samarja. It was a, uh, they were the, who was that team this year? I forget. Uh, the Diamondbacks. Is it the Diamondbacks? Yeah, that's probably the closest. So yeah, they were, they were the, uh, they were, they would have been the team that, that everybody remembered for quote unquote winning the offseason if it weren't for AJ Preller. But then that team, which had a great, great core. I mean, I think you could make the case that the core of Sale, Abreu, Eaton, was the best, maybe the you know one of the best, certainly one of the best uh, young cores 
in baseball. Uh, and then they won 78 games and finished 19 games out. So this offseason, they traded for Brett Laurie. They traded for Todd Frazier. They signed Alex Avila. And they declined the option on Alexi Ramirez. And that's been their offseason, correct? Yes. So does this, to you, seem like a team that is uh, aggressively pursuing a crown? Or does it seem like a team that kind of split the difference? I wouldn't call this offseason especially aggressive. They targeted the weak point from last year, which was the infield. That was the, the concern coming into the year after they'd spent all that money was that they still didn't really have a player at like half of the positions where you have to have players. Mm -hmm. And really for the White Sox, the infield has been the weak point for like 15 years. Yeah. Especially second base, but also frequently third base. So they address that. I mean, Frazier is a three or four win player and they're upgrading from like replacement level-ish last year probably. And Lori is competent compared to what they had last year. So that's good. That's progress. And they get a full season of Carlos Rodon, who was very good down the stretch. That's a positive thing also, but it's not an overwhelmingly impressive team, I don't think. They haven't really blown it out. Yeah, and they still have, um, you know, they, they still have serious holes in their starting rotation. I think most significantly, and they now no longer they no longer really have a shortstop. Nope, Tyler Saladino. Yeah, I don't. Let me let me see what we project Tyler Saladino to be. Yeah, we project actually we project uh, we project not bad things from Tyler Saladino. I will say in their defense that we project a uh, at least a better than replacement level player. Not a good one. Bad hitter. Decent defense at a premium position. Good base running. Not a disaster. Not Gordon Beckham. Okay. So uh, levels that. in the infield. So, yeah, there is that. Do you? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly where this puts their payroll. But one of the things that was interesting about last year's is that, as kind of with the Padres, they were able to acquire a lot of players without really going that high with their payroll. The White Sox had a hundred fifteen million dollar payroll last year, uh, which put them, you know, behind the Reds and behind the Blue Jays and behind the Mariners and behind half the league. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, you still do hear rumors about them. They seem to be maybe one of the teams that's slightly more likely to make a move going forward because you do still hear rumors. I mean, I don't get the feeling that they are a particularly daunting contender right now. Like if I had to pick, I would Mm -hmm. put them around 500, maybe slightly below and, Mm -hmm. uh, not really a threat to the, uh, existing baseball power structure. I would agree with that. And uh, so then that's uh, kind of a disappointing offseason. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. The Tigers, who finished in last place last year and had the fourth highest payroll in baseball, and they got Jordan Zimmerman in one of the first big moves of the offseason, and then after that have been notably frugal. I've heard them linked to Cespedes loosely, but uh, rather than go after one of these big offensive free agents, uh, they got Cameron Mabin, who was kind of the um, bargain option, uh, to play center field. And then they moved Anthony Ghost to left, presumably. And uh, so this is a team that... Made some bullpen moves. 
Francisco Rodriguez and Justin Wilson. Oh yeah, that's right. They did. So I guess if in a in a normal world, you might think that the Tigers would be the team that was most linked to these three remaining free agents because uh, they have been a team that has well, for one thing, they have been a team that has you know, signed big contracts late in the offseason. Not many. The later you get into the offseason, the fewer teams actually really have the flexibility to add $25 million of payroll. The yeah. Tigers the Tigers uh, owner seems to be very comfortable doing that in a way that a lot of owners are not, and he has given his GMs the freedom and flexibility to do that in a way that other owners have not. Uh, however, the thing about the Tigers is, is that they are pushing right up against the luxury tax, and uh, it sort of it does seem that they don't want to go over that and that that is a barrier to them going forward. Yes. That's all. That's all I got to say. Okay. Well, they could certainly use Justin Upton in left field. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they so they don't really have a their left fielders Tyler Collins on the depth chart right now. So a left fielder, a Cespedes would be a pretty decent upgrade for them. Yeah. So the question is whether they are a 74 win team that should that is actually much closer to winning the division or not and i mean in a sense uh, this is kind of the uh, the classic example of a team that is probably not that close uh they're you know they they're they're not well okay let me rephrase that they're not right on the cusp of winning 96 games or anything like that you could make the case that they're a team that has a slim chance of winning the division next year however given the makeup of their roster, it's not as though 2017 is going to be any better or 2018 is going to be any better. And so this might be the last best chance for such a thing. Uh, and um, so, you know, I don't know. It, it, I don't know how much the feeling is that this is the last chance to win in the Miguel Cabrera, Justin Verlander window. But uh, neither of those guys is likely to be better in two years and they are going to be more expensive in two years. So, yeah. And they've clearly gone part of the, I mean, they've, they've tried to make themselves better this off season. I think they could have gone the other way. Like they could have continued to do what they did at last year's trading deadline where they got rid of price and Cespedes. They could have tried to trade other people, could have traded JD Martinez or someone like that who has trade value. A lot of their people don't have trade value, which is a problem, but they could have tried to offload some people and they didn't, they brought in people. So it seems that they are at least hedging their bets for next year or maybe trying to do more than that. And that's part of what makes all the teams, you know, uncertain positions even more uncertain is that you don't actually know what their competition is going to be like. They don't know what it's going to take to win the Central. They don't know how many teams are going to be, uh, you know, chasing 94 wins. It might be that it might be that 84 gets it next year or it might be that at least 84 gets you within striking distance at the trade deadline. And it doesn't seem particularly likely at this point, given what we know about each team's offseason, that any team uh, is going to run away and win 100. Uh, and so even if you thought that you weren't in a great competitive position in November, if you're the Tigers, uh, every day that passes it makes it sort of more compelling. The race seems a little bit closer and if I, I i think i would feel that way maybe especially if i were the white Sox, because you know the white Sox have watched the tigers not really improve all that much and that might have been the big threat i guess you could argue that the royals 
uh, held more talent than you would have expected as the offseason began and they were going to lose Ryan Madsen mm-hmm. and uh, Alex Gordon and Ben Zobrist. And they managed to keep and Alex Cueto. and Cueto. Yeah, of course, Cueto, although Cueto added very little to their team yeah. last year. Uh, and uh, they, they ultimately kept Alex Gordon, which means that rather than losing, you know, eight or nine wins from their roster, they lost like four or so, uh, four or five. And so they actually end up being, in a way, a team that is probably better than I expected them to be at this point because they kept Gordon. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, it's also somewhat depressing to think that the Royals uh, are in a position where they can win a World Series and still not really have any extra margins uh, to act like a uh, top half team. Now, that's it. We're somewhat underestimating what the Royals spend. The Royals had the same payroll last year, basically, as the White Sox. They're a median payroll team last year. So it is not as though the Royals are walking around carrying a, uh, you know, a bottom five payroll despite success. That would be the Indians, who uh, seem to be, in a lot of ways, the team other than maybe the Rays and maybe the Marlins uh, with the most structural disadvantages uh, in their market. Uh, right now in the current era. And uh, so they uh, were the team that I know even in September, our playoff odds were much more optimistic about them than the average fan would have been because they performed very well last year. They had their Pythagorean record and their third order winning percentages uh, were pretty encouraging. And, And as you wrote about, they had serious deep flaws in their roster early in the season that they were able to uh, improve as they went in a pretty impressive way simply by cutting a few guys free and moving a couple guys to different positions and promoting a couple of guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Indians, I don't know. I mean, if I'd asked you, if the season had reset at 0-0 on September 1st, my guess is that you would have picked the Indians for the AL Central? Yes. And so I think earlier in the offseason, I think you did pick the Indians for next I did. year. I did. And mm-hmm. uh, they, since you made that pick, and I don't know what you were you know, expecting from their offseason, uh, but since they, since you made that prediction, they added Mike Napoli, and that's the whole story. <laughs> right. And I don't know, does that, does that change what you think at all, or were you, expe- I mean, is it like, and they got Mike Napoli? Is it, <laughs> is it more like that? Yeah, it was mainly based on the talent they already had, more so than projecting them to do lots of stuff. I still think they're the best team in the division. I still, I mean, they could, they could definitely be better if they spent a little money because they're missing Michael Brantley for a good chunk of the season, some percentage of the season. And so if they were to add a corner guy or a first base guy or something, that would make them better that would lengthen their lineup it's it's an okay lineup as it is but they're probably more of a pitching team still and it helps that they can actually field now since that was really sapping the pitching before but they could definitely benefit if they were to sign one of these remaining guys but even if they don't i think they are still on paper, the class of this division. And why do you think that? Over, I mean, it's hard to say why. It's hard to say why a team is better than another team when well, they have more good players, more in my opinion. Players. But <laughs> yeah. do you? I mean, I assume that there are people who think, wait a minute, the Royals, you know, won fourteen more games than them last year. 
Uh, and the, that's the second year in a row that the Royals have not only been much better than the Indians, but have, uh, or at least won many more games than the Indians, but outperformed their third order winning percentage to a significant degree. I assume your position of the Indians over the Royals is third order related, which is to say that given the number of hits and uh, everything else that the Indians got and allowed, uh, they looked like a team that should win about 93 games, while the Royals looked like a team that should win about 86 games. I assume that's the basis of your position, but is it yeah, more I mean, nuanced you, than that? If you you could look at it that way, or if you just look at projections, they're projected to be better. And I wonder how much we will <laughs> will kind of uh, bump up our Royals, our mental Royals projections for this year based on what happened last year, just because we were all so far off on the Royals that this year, if the projection says whatever it says, <laughs> well, I wonder how many wins will take over that just because of what happened last year. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a, a huge difference, but I did think the Indians were a lot better than their record showed last year and they brought back pretty much their whole team. And it would be nice if they added to it a little bit. But I think even as is, they are a strong contender. It's interesting because the Indians are, you know, there's not a huge... If, if one way of looking at it is there's not a huge difference between their payroll and, you know, say the league average payroll. It's like, you know, $25, $30 million a year usually. And that's partly because baseball props up the floor by, with revenue sharing. Uh, but, you know, the 30 million seems like an interesting amount, but it's not a huge deal relative to, for instance, the difference between the top teams and the middle, which now you're looking at 70 million, 80 million, or if you go to the very top teams, you know, 150 million between the median and the Dodgers, more than 100 million between the Yankees uh, and the median. And that gap is much, much bigger. And so you, in one way of thinking about it, you go, okay, well, the fact that they're a bottom five payroll overstates it. But I think you really see it where teams like the Indians are concerned, where they're in a position where this is absolutely the point where you would spend money, that they are in that sweet spot where every win is excessively more valuable than the average win or than the, uh, you know, than a win in a vacuum, because they are going to be right there somewhere between, you know, 84 and 88 in a division where somewhere between 87 and 90 probably gets it done. This is a it's a sort of a sweet little window for them. They if they were a team that could carry the median payroll like the White Sox or like the Padres or, you know, like the Orioles, teams that we think of as not particularly advantaged but slightly above the Indians, well this would be the offseason where they go out and they make that one big move. Like the Mariners for instance. This would be the year that they would go out and they'd get the one big player or maybe the two big players or maybe three more, you know, medium players. And the Indians just can't do that. And if you look at an offseason like this, where they were last year, where they are going into this year, if they can't go, you know, bump up and add 25 million for this year and go from 85 to, you know, 110, well, then it's just never going to happen, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I mean, I think the last news on Brantley was over a month ago, but there was a report that he might be out until June. That lineup looks a lot better with Brantley, and if he's not going to be in it for a good chunk of the year, and since he's coming back from shoulder stuff, who knows if he'll be quite his old self immediately. If you could add Cespedes or 
or Upton to that lineup and just, I don't know, platoon Davis and Almonte or something or figure it out, that would look a lot better and that would be a, a good place and a good time to spend. So yeah, the fact that they haven't suggests that they just can't or they're not willing to and they're not going to be. And finally, we have the Twins uh, who don't get, I mean, we don't generally praise the Twins front office uh, a ton around here. And when we had Aaron Gleeman on last year, we sort of talked about whether the Twins front office was going to be smart enough to see through their season to some degree. We they, they didn't have a season that convinced you that they were a great team already and that they should go all in last year or even this year. And I kind of thought that, I mean, the, the, I think that the way that we talked about them going into this offseason is that they would they would probably overshoot, that they would think that they had a better team than they did. Uh, and instead of being really patient, they would go do something maybe not that farsighted. And uh, in fact, they were, if anything, uh, maybe passive to a fault this offseason, maybe. I don't know, you could argue that. But they certainly didn't uh, take last season and say, we're there. This is not the 2009, I think, Mariners, for instance, where they had kind of a fluky good season and then went out and spent a ton of money on some long-term deals that immediately turned bad. The Twins essentially got Byung-Ho Park, and that's it. That's their entire offseason, which I think is probably better than the alternative. Uh, there, there are a lot of alternatives, of course, but it's better than the alternative of uh, you know, going out and sinking uh, a lot of money into a couple of deals that really uh, hamstring them in the future uh, and make their 2017, 2018, 2019 projects harder to complete. So, uh, you know, I think that it's sort of a, an admirably patient approach. I, mm-hmm. I, would, I would not be surprised if they sneak into a couple of uh, rumors going forward. And at this point, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't begrudge them a move, another move. But it sort of seems like a team that is willing to take it a little bit slow, see where they are in July, uh, and uh, and keep their window open for four or five years instead of just one or two. Yeah, I would think of them as more of a 2017 team. They still have a very twinsy rotation, and I think it's hard to build a great team with that kind of rotation. But you get a full season of Miguel Sano and that should be fun. And I guess you get a full season of Byron Buxton. I don't know exactly what he'll be right now, but it should be entertaining to watch at least. And if they are good, if they have a first half that exceeds expectations, then I think people won't begrudge them mid-season trades the way that they did when we talked about them last July. So there's some upside the flip side to this discussion is that they're in a lot of ways in a similar place to the Royals before 2014, before the James Shields trade, I should say. Uh-huh. And um, we, in, in a way, what we're saying is good job not doing that Royals trade that we all ripped at the time. Uh, and that, of course, we, <laughs> in retrospect, were wrong about. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know that you should listen to us. No, probably not. All right. Joe Maurer makes me sad. Does he? Joe Maurer was... I want him to be better. Yeah, I know. Joe Maurer was just like the... Joe Maurer is going to be pretty close. He's he's going to... I think he'll be pretty close to the best player through age 30 that doesn't make the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Like, he's... I don't know if he will get there, but he was a 45-win player through age 30 as a catcher. 
which the like we talked about, the standard for catchers and Jaws and Hall of Fame standards are lower because they don't play for as long and they don't play as much. So he was basically, you know, two, three good years from being an easy Hall of Famer. And now I just he's not really like I I I kind I don't think he's going to get there anymore. No, people used to make Jason Kendall comps with him mm. just because he had had a heavy workload and he was an on-base guy. So there were fears that maybe he would age like Jason Kendall. And I guess he kind of is, except that because of the concussion, he couldn't and shouldn't catch. And that means he has to play first base. And Jason Kendall as a first baseman would not have lasted very long. Yeah, Jomar was was absolutely one of the great viewing experiences, I think, yeah. of, of the era. And probably not, I mean, certainly not enough credit in Minnesota, it doesn't sound like. But mm-hmm. but I don't know. We've it's only been two years since his prime, and I've already kind of forgotten about it. But okay, so war war through age thirty for catchers by baseball reference. Mauer is number six all time ahead of Mike Piazza, ahead of Carlton Fisk, ahead of Buster Posey, who's actually not thirty yet. So that's a little bit of a cheat. But he's gonna be ahead of Buster Posey probably when all is said and done. You know, ahead of everybody except. Bench, Carter, Pudge, Torrey, and Ted Simmons. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right, so we got an impromptu play index here under mm-hmm. the wire. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can send us emails for tomorrow, most likely, at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes and support our sponsor that Sam just used, playindex at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back soon. Bye.